My name is Matthew Preeby, and I am a naturalist. I study nature, I study animals, I study plants, and I study the ways that they interact with each other and the various forces of the world around them. And I've been able to study animals in this way for the last 25 years, traveling coast to coast across North America, seeing animals in their natural habitat wherever they happen to live. And so this has been something that uh, has been very uh, enjoyable and interesting to really get into the intricacies of God's creation and see what he has shown us in the book of nature. And so some of you may be wondering how I ever had the fortune to get into such an unusual lifestyle. Well, that was because 30 years ago, my father, Dennis Preeby, joined Amazing Facts as a revival speaker and started traveling across North America holding meetings in churches just like this and, and regular churches in Adventism all across the country. And for that, we were traveling basically half the year, six to eight months of the year, every weekend a new church, a new location. And so this was something that was uh, an extraordinary opportunity. Now for the first 15 years of those 30 years, I was a passenger. I went where he went and did what he did, and it was very enjoyable, and I had a lot of fun. But uh, the last 15 years, I became more and more involved with the speaking part of Dennis Preeby's ministry, and so that is what has been uh, able to make about these types of meetings like we're having here. And so I've been focusing on two major areas, creation and evolution, and animal protection and the ways that God has put animals into this world, both for the way the world works and for our own uh, uh, benefit. And so that has been uh, the focus of my speaking ministry as part of my father's. Now, uh, what we normally do is travel from place to place and go from church to church and hold meetings in churches each weekend together. Normally, he will do the first several meetings on righteousness by faith and various uh, uh, related topics, and then I will finish out the weekend with a uh, meeting on creation and evolution or animal protection. And so that's our normal procedure. In the last seven years, um, our ministry has changed again when I was able to rescue one of uh, your regular attendees right here. Her name at that point was uh, Delise Horner. And she came here all the time, and I was able to save her from the smog of Loma Linda and get her to be able to come across the country, and she became our photographer and my wife. And so most of the pictures that uh, you will be seeing today, 90% of what you're seeing, will be her uh, photography that uh, has been put together into these programs and part of our ministry. So that has been a wonderful and invaluable part of what we do. And so that has been the uh, normal procedure for what we are doing across the country. Now, obviously, this weekend is not a normal weekend. I'm holding meetings here with you all day, all the way till sundown tonight. And uh, my father is actually holding meetings down in San Diego uh, in a church down there. And so he's actually doing the uh, uh, regular meetings, except not part of with my participation. Um, that will change because next week he's come actually coming up here and we'll be holding meetings together like we normally do. Uh, we'll be over at Mento starting on Friday night. He will be holding a uh, meeting there and then all day Sabbath. And then uh, Saturday night I will be holding one of my nature presentations at that point. And so that's our normal procedure and so that's how uh, we'll be going back to next week. The weekend after that, two weekends from now, he'll actually be here in uh, Loma Linda holding meetings at the uh, Loma Linda Romanian Church. And so that is a, a very close access to you be able to uh, come and see him. And he would love for you to come and see him at either one of those or both because uh, he's going to be doing different meetings at both places. He's not going to be repeating himself at each one. You can go to both and get totally different meetings. And so uh, you're welcome to be able to come to those. And uh, we're getting a lot of feedback here. Can we turn it down just a bit? He'd be uh, very happy for you to come to those and, and see him because, honestly, we don't get to Southern California as often as uh, you might think. Um, our schedule is different every year, and last year we had to cut out entirely Southern California from our schedule. We had so many meetings that uh, were wanting us to come that we had to pick a part of the country to uh, be excised from our schedule, and Southern California got the short straw. And so this year we're able to come to uh, Southern California again, but you never know which, uh, what our meetings will be from year to year, and so take advantage of the opportunity while you can to be able to come and see him because uh, it, uh, you know, it's uh, really special to be able to hear people live sometimes rather than just like on Audioverse where many of his sermons already are. 
But enough about that. Now it's time to look at houses. It is malfunctioning, we need to replace it. Okay. That sounds like a stirring topic for a uh, church service to look at buildings, right? That's, uh, that's what um, would, uh, still not on? All right, there we go. That sounds like a stirring topic for a sermon to look at buildings. So uh, that's what we're gonna be doing next. Let's start with prayer. Father in heaven, we ask you now as we open up your second inspired book, the book of nature, to let your spirit guide us and lead us to truths that perhaps we've never thought about before as we look at the animal world and what you have created. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the God-given gift of animal architecture. Now, what is that talking about? In other meetings that uh, I have done here at Advent Hope, I have talked about a variety of creation science issues where we have looked at a variety of ways that evolution cannot work and is not supported by the animal world that we see around us. So that is uh, what we've done here before and those are all valid, but we're gonna do something a little bit different today. We're going to focus, very finely focus, on one topic, animal architecture, because that one topic by itself completely and utterly refutes evolution. Now, how can that be? What is going on with that? You can actually use this argument by itself and what it represents to completely undermine the principles and foundations that evolution represents. Intrigued? Let's get started. Architecture. What is it? Why is it important? The dictionary defines architecture as the art or science of building, including design, construction, and decorative treatment. So any act of construction where a human builds an object is an example of architecture. Excavating a shelter cave out of soft cliffs, a house of wood or stone, a fortified castle, grain silos, warehouses, power plants, freeways, all are forms of architecture. In fact, most of the structures in our lives are forms of human architecture. Now how does a human go about building these objects? Originally, someone gets an idea using tools and local materials and works until completing the design. At this point, one of two things will happen. One, the knowledge of how to build this specific design will be lost as the uh, builder and the design will have to be rediscovered from scratch later by someone else. Or two, the knowledge of how to build this specific design will be passed on by the builder to other people, either verbally or by writing. Now once this second option happens, then more people will copy this design and improve upon it. This allows mass production by people who are skilled in copying, but who aren't likely to invent a new design themselves. Without language, writing, and practical training, each new human generation would have to start from square one. Reinventing designs over and over again. How many of us could build our own house from scratch unless that is our profession or hobby? So we depend upon language and writing for progress. So now what about the animals? Let's say an individual animal is the genius of his species. He one day realizes that digging a hole or building a shelter is a good idea. He uses his newborn insight to create a structure that makes life easier to live. How will this knowledge be passed on to others of his species? He has no formal language to tell others how to make it. He can't write it down. Even if others watch him build, few if any will understand that this is a good activity to copy. So the likelihood of a new form of architecture being passed on to others in the animal world is low to non-existent. But there are many animals in nature who are builders during some part of their lives. If they evolved over millions of years, how did they become builders? Animals who build have physical skills and mental instincts that allow them to create architecture. Their instincts are hardwired into their brains from birth. Now where did this instinct come from and when did it start? According to the theory of evolution, there had to be an individual animal in the history of a species that learned how to build and then passed this knowledge on as instinct. But evolution offers no scientific evidence for an individual's knowledge being passed on to her babies as hardwired instinct. If she teaches her children what she has learned, 
then they can continue the teaching of this information to their children. But this is not instinct. When the chain of teaching is broken, any skills learned will be lost until rediscovered anew by later individuals. This makes the origin of instinct a very difficult problem for evolution, especially in those animal species which never have any opportunity to teach their young anything. How does an insect or a spider teach their babies that they will never see? How does a bird teach her chick how to build a nest when their nest is finished before the chick hatches and the chick will leave long before next year's nest will be built. Evolutionists throw the term instinct around without ever explaining its origin. But for a creationist, instinct is an important tool of God's creation. God made animals with useful physical skills and hardwired mental knowledge that lets them construct homes or shelters. Since every animal is an individual, some will implement their skills well, and some will do so poorly but all will pass on the skills of their species to their children through genetics. God has given wonderful gifts to many animal architects. If only one or two species existed, evolution could account for it. If the more skilled builders that we find, the more problems they create for evolution. Each species that builds is a living witness for creation and undermines the speculation of evolutionists. So this presentation will look at the huge variety of animal architects, for there are far more than most of us realize. And their diversity is a wonderful testimony of God's special creation. The first question we need to ask is, what is architecture and what is not architecture? Because there are many places where animals live that they have not constructed themselves. A hole in the base of a tree is a naturally occurring phenomenon that no animal created, but many animals will live in it. A cave is used by, a cave is used by bats to roost, but obviously the bats didn't create that cave. It was already there ahead of them. So this is not architecture. There are many animals in the ocean which are very well protected because of hard shells that protect their body from attack. And so this applies to the various mussels and clams and even the coral reefs. All of these animals have a hard shell that grows around their body from birth and this protects them from attack, but this is not architecture. They have put no thought into it whatsoever. The coral reefs are actually some of the biggest structures in the world and in the natural world, but they are not any form of architecture because these are microscopic animals creating a bit of a hard sub substance that is added to the previous hard substance and it builds and grows without any thought processes on their part. On land, there are snails which get bigger as they grow and have a nice hard shell, but again, this is not architecture because they have put no thought into it at all and nothing they do changes it one way or the other. Box turtles are another example of this type of non-architecture. They are very well protected by this hard shell, and when danger threatens, they pull their heads and tail and legs in, and they have a hinge on their lower side which snaps shut, and they are then in a fortress that will prevent any predator from breaking in and damaging them. But this is still not architecture. But here's that same box turtle. What is she doing? You notice there, she's digging with her hind feet. She's about to lay eggs in a hole that she has dug in the mud. This is something that she is using her brain and her body to make that wasn't there before. This is architecture. And so a turtle, in this case a pond turtle, digging a hole for her eggs, is making a very rudimentary form of architecture, a hole that wasn't there to protect her young. So now that we've defined architecture and what is and what is not, from this point forward in the program all day, we are going to be looking at those forms of architecture which are totally architecture. Everything from this forward, point forward is true architecture. And since we started with a turtle laying her eggs for her in a, in a hole in the ground, we're going to start with those animals which make a hole in the ground for their young. Here's a little hole found in a desert sandy area, and the builder of this particular hole is a type of wasp, a thread-waisted wasp, and she digs this hole in the dirt, and then she comes with a caterpillar that she has stung, and she drags it down inside the hole after she has been very careful to make sure no intruders have come in while she has been gone, and then she comes back up, grabs the caterpillar, and pulls it down into her hole, lays an egg on it, and then closes it up, and her young have a nice secure place full of food to grow and develop, and that is uh, her form of architecture. 
This is a pit in a sandy area that you have probably seen somewhere in your life in a dry area. And this is formed by a very strange little animal called an antlion. Now this is the adult form of the antlion. It is a winged insect that flies around in the summertime. And when they, she is ready to lay her eggs, those eggs hatch out. And at that point, the larva will grow up in this form. And they will look for a sandy area. And then they will dig down into the dirt. Now you notice they have, this one's very dirty because he, I just pulled him up out of the sand. But this one right here I've cleaned off and it is showing all his various hairs and parts. Right here is his head and it is this very flat shovel-like head. And what he will do is he will dig that shovel head into the sand and hurl the sand upwards and backwards. And then he will dig his way down until he has accomplished a very deep little funnel that will be a perfect trap for insects who are wandering across the surface of the sand. And then in a very protected place, a lot of these guys will build their, uh, their little pits, and it becomes a minefield that pretty much dooms any ant walking across it. The little ants come along, they go down into the, the pits, and then they try and go up the side, and it becomes too steep for them, they fall backwards. If they do not fall back quickly enough, and if they're about to, ready to escape out of the hole, the ant line will actually take that shovel head and flick sand at the ant and disrupt his hold upon the sides of the uh, funnel, and he will slip backward down into the bottom of the pit where the ant lion is waiting with those enormous jaws to clamp onto it, drag it underneath the sand, and get himself a meal. And so they do this for until they have developed old enough to be able to transform themselves into the adult of their, uh, of their species. You notice they have enormously long side legs and they wedge those into the uh, uh, soil so that they will not be in any way pulled out by the ants that they are struggling with. It gives them a very strong anchor. And then when they transform like a butterfly, transforming into an adult, they will develop into these uh, adult forms that never eat an ant and never dig a pit and will fly around and lay the eggs and start the cycle anew. Now we've been looking at holes dug for their young, but many animals dig holes for themselves. And so when we look at a hole in the ground, you're looking at somebody's architectural home. This particular hole right here is found in the desert and has been built by a kangaroo rat. Now kangaroo rats are enormously entertaining little animals found in desert and dry areas of the western United States. And these guys are called rat, but they're in no way related to the city or sewer rats that we think of as the disease and problem ones that are eating our food. These guys are living out by themselves in the desert, totally minding their own business, and are in fact a hugely important animal to the desert ecosystems. They're called kangaroo because they jump. Here's his hind feet. He's in mid-jump in this picture right here, almost out of frame. And he uses his long tail as a navigating uh, rudder to steer himself as he jumps through the air. And uh, these guys are able to jump long distances like a kangaroo. And uh, that's how they get their name. Now, they like to build their burrows underneath the roots of creosote trees or bushes because that allows them to anchor their roots so it doesn't just collapse in the shifting sands. And this gives them a nice protected place to be able to live in. These guys are very, desert, very much desert specialists. They live in hostily dry areas, and they eat dry seeds, and they never drink water their entire life, and their water is manufactured from their bodies from the dry seeds that they are eating. God has given these animals the ability to live in the driest deserts without any problems whatsoever. So these guys are really special little animals. And actually, they're becoming quite rare in a number of places. These guys are actually um, some of the endangered species that you've heard about in various places. And these are some of the ones that have been lost because of various development and ranching interests and various things like that. And if you've ever heard anybody who doesn't like the Endangered Species Act talking about the horrible uh, species that are protected on it, like rats, these are who they're talking about. These are not the sewer rats. These are not the city rats that you're thinking of. And it is used as a scapegoat to make people hate animal protection in this way because they're trying to discredit the efforts made to protect special species like this. And of course, they don't, people don't care about these guys. They're really after the big uh, animals like the bears and wolves. They're the ones they're really trying to destroy. And these guys are just a means to that end by attacking them. Now here's a mound of soil that has been pushed up into somebody's front yard. And if you ever have a lawn and you see one of these, you know you got yourself a perhaps unwelcome visitor in your yard. In this case, it is a mole. 
Now, moles are little creatures that are found always underground. They virtually never come above the surface. And these guys are underground specialists. Their fur is not like a cat or dog fur, which you pet it in one direction and it's smooth and the other way is rough. Their fur is actually has the ability to flip either direction so they can go forward or backward in a burrow and their fur is not going to get caught on the uh, surface of their burrows. They move around. So they're very well designed for underground living. They are almost blind. Their eyes are hidden away inside their fur here, and you can barely see them. And so because they never come up, they never need to see. Instead, they have whiskers on the front of their mouth and very sensitive uh, uh, facial hairs that allow them to be able to feel what's going on, and they can smell very good. But their really skill is their digging ability. And they have the most enormous feet you're ever going to see on a little animal with claws that are able to dig through the toughest soil and be able to dig their way to place to place as they go from here to there. Look at those enormous feet. As they are moving around through the soil, they can dig themselves out of sight. If you pull them up onto the surface and put them down, they'll be out of sight within a minute, digging down underneath the soil as they move around. And then they push the soil that they haven't used up any, above the ground, and those are your molehills that you'll find in various places. Now, underneath the surface of the ocean, the equivalent of moles are mantis shrimps. Now, these guys dig burrows in the coralline rubble, and they will keep them immaculately clean and protected from any kind of destruction because that is their escape route. These guys are enormously colorful animals with huge eyes that look in both directions. They're independently controlled by the uh, little mantis shrimp, and they have very strong front legs with they, which they use to catch their meals and defend themselves, and that's why they're called mantis because it looks like a praying mantis front legs. And if they have any danger coming, they will immediately dive down into their burrow and escape out of sight because that's their uh, safety route. And so they're able to avoid any kind of danger in that way. An enormously entertaining little undersea animal. There are mud shrimps as well, which also never come to the surface except in very rare cases. And they use their front legs as a bulldozer to push the soil out of their burrows up to the surface so that they can go to uh, great lengths to keep their burrow clean of dirt. And they will push it up until they have made a nice, safe retreat where they can go and come from danger. And so again, these guys are underground, underwater specialists that are very rarely seen on the surface. But this funny face right here is called a pocket gopher. Now, these are your other mound builders in your front yard. And these guys are uh, not uh, insect and worm eaters like the mole, but these guys are vegetarians. And so these are the ones that are causing you problems in your gardens. They'll walk, go along and pull down various uh, plants from above. They love grass and various succulent uh, garden plants. And they push up all the dirt out of their uh, underground tunnels and into large mounds. Um, they're a little bit different than the moles. Uh, the moles usually just point, push up dirt and never come to the surface, but these guys actually come out partially and then retreat back into it very quickly. They very rarely go more than a body length away from the hole that they have dug. And then when they're in these holes, they push up the soil with their uh, face and push it onto their mound. And once they have uh, uh, made a large a pile of debris on the surface, then they will plug the mound from the inside so that no snake or predator can come back down into his uh, tunnels and go after them. So they're protected underground in that way. Now, very rarely you will have one of these guys far from his burrow, and this is something they don't like to be, and so we got these pictures when he, this guy was feeding from dried plums in our backyard. And so he was so excited about those dried plums that he was willing to be exposed out in the open. So this was an unusual opportunity to see, again, those, you know, these feet that he uses. And very small eyes, again, very small ears. They don't want to get dirt in their ears, so they have very small ears. And again, their whiskers and their very strong front chisel teeth and their very strong claws and hands that they use to dig in various places. This guy was so excited about the plums that he let me pet him without uh, complaining in any way. And so, I mean, I don't know what was going on with these plums, if they were totally, uh, uh, completely fermented, and this guy was too intoxicated to care, but, you know, he was not going to budge from those plum breakfasts that he was having. Now, this is a weird form of architecture that unless you live in the southeastern United States, you've probably never seen before. It is a little tower found on the ground. It's about six to eight inches tall, sometimes a foot, and it's all made out of mud pellets. And if you look straight down from above, there's an open uh, uh, hole that leads down underneath the surface of the ground. Now, who's going to be building a little weird mud turret like this? Well, it's an architect you may never have even considered or thought about before, a crayfish. These guys are called chimney crayfish, and they are found in wet, swampy areas. 
and they are not actually swimming around in the streams or ponds like regular crayfish, but are found in places where it's very swampy and wet at a high water table. And most crayfish are always underwater because they breathe with gills and need to be uh, always able to stay underwater in this way. These guys live underneath the water surface in their burrows, but then during the night they come up to the surface with pellets of mud that they've pulled out from their tunnel system and they attach it to the top of their turret and then they build it up higher and higher until they've gotten a nice little protective turret that protects their burrow entrance from any wandering predator that's going to come along and it's not going to think to crawl up over it and go to inside it and so this gives them a nice extra bit of protection down inside their burrow home. So when we look at these guys and the various ways that uh, burrows are built this is the simplest form of architecture. I'm starting with the basics, we're getting more complicated as we go, but all of these forms of architecture are instinct that has been given to these animals by God that allows them to function in their each special and individual way. Now the animals that build homes for themselves are what we've been looking at, but there are other animals who build a home and then it allows other animals to join them and those are called innkeepers. And so when we look at a regular ground squirrel, like this round-tailed ground squirrel, they're going to dig a hole underground, and this is going to be for their family and for themselves with various different chambers. And it's a pretty simple burrow, and then once the babies are given birth to, they'll start to come up and explore these various areas. At this point, this is a simple type of uh, architecture, but there are other rodent diggers, squirrels, which are extremely adept architects, and these are the prairie dogs. Now prairie dogs are found throughout the Great Plains of North America and they are found where the bison used to roam. And they used to live in huge towns, hundreds of acres across, with thousands of individual prairie dog tunnels in throughout that entire individual town. And there were towns scattered everywhere. And the bison would graze in it and everything would be fine, they would be totally peaceful together. And so this was something that used to be quite common across North American uh, grasslands. Now the tunnel systems of the prairie dogs are intricate and complicated and they are worked on by the entire family. So they're all working together to make these burrow systems. And uh, they are all different chambers inside there. And each chamber is a little bit different, different use, different function, and they all know what each chamber is for. So a chamber will be for a bedroom and another one for a nursery for the babies and another a bathroom for the various uh, ones to use and another a storage pantry for the food and another one for a sentry post just outside the entrance. And so all of these burrow holes do something different and each animal knows what's a part of their burrow they need to go to to do whatever they can. And in fact, these are extremely sophisticated animals and they're a rodent and so we wouldn't consider them to be that sophisticated. But in fact, prairie dogs have been found to exhibit language. They actually use words as they communicate with each other. They use different calls to mean different things. If they see a hawk in the sky, they give a different call than if they see a snake in the grass or a coyote coming through the area. Each call is representing a different danger and they let each other know using their words and language what is going on and once the danger is passed they give an all clear call that everything is okay and you can resume feeding yourself. So these guys are a small little rodent showing skills of language and so this was something that was only discovered in the last 15-20 years and totally shocked researchers who never knew something like this could have such complexity. Now they build these homes for themselves, but many other animals come along and live in them. And that's what makes these guys innkeepers. And so a burrowing owl coming along, which will not dig his own burrow, finds a prairie dog hole that has been abandoned and then they go down and lay their eggs and the baby burrowing owls are raised underground and then brought to the surface when they're old enough. And so this is a form of innkeeping again. There are other animals which also inhabit the burrows of prairie dogs which are not nearly as welcome visitors because badgers eat prairie dogs. And so the prairie dogs are not too thrilled about that, but that's what happens. So a number of these animals living in these homes are making use of something that was provided for by someone else. And this is again showing how God takes one animal to provide for many. And in fact, prairie dogs are a keystone species of their Great Plains habitat, which means they're the most important species that lives in that particular habitat. And so this is a very unusual example of showing how a rodent is a keystone species of its specific type of uh, dwelling place. Now you notice that the mounds of these various prairie dogs are slightly elevated. It's a little place where they can stand on top of it, give them a little bit extra sentry room to watch in various directions for danger. But uh, even more important than that, 
thunderstorms rip through the Great Plains and a lot of water comes at once and this extra little bulge prevents those burrows from being flooded. And so it prevents them from being swamped inside their burrows, gives them a nice place to be able to shelter when the major storms come through. But if you are in a captive situation as a prairie dog and you don't have enough dirt to make your mound and a huge thunderstorm comes through, this is what can happen. This little prairie dog spent all morning digging out his muddy burrow after the storm had gone through and he was one sad bedraggled little squirrel trying to get that place fit to live again. And so if this little squirrel has any message for us is don't let that happen to your home. Rabbits are another innkeeper. They dig burrow systems and make themselves a home. And one of their unusual guests in, over in Europe are the common shell ducks. They actually go into rabbit burrows and live inside those rabbit bur burrows and lay their eggs underground in this form, just like the burrowing owl. There are many types of land-dwelling uh, turtles, and they are called tortoises. And these vary from little tiny guys smaller than your hand to enormous ones, some of the largest reptiles in the world that live on various islands in the oceans. And so these guys have a huge range of size. And a lot of them will dig some sort of a burrow for themselves to protect themselves from the heat or from the rain or whatever the habitat they happen to live in. Some of these are very simple scrapes that just barely get out of the sun's rays and keep themselves from being overheated. And this gives them a nice little shelter to come into in the middle of the day. But there are other tortoises which are much bigger builders of these burrow systems. And these guys, we have one of them here in California in the deserts of the Mojave, and this is the desert tortoise. Now, desert tortoises dig large burrow systems. They go down 20, 30 feet underneath the ground's surface and have a chamber at the end of it. And then this protects them from the very scorching heat of the middle of the day, as well as the summertime when it's just too hot to function outside. And so these guys are able to escape and live without these burrows, they would not be able to survive. Now, if a ground squirrel comes along and lives inside the burrow, then these tortoises will also become a form of innkeeper. But that's kind of haphazard, it doesn't happen that often. But there is another form of tortoise found in the east called the gopher tortoise, which is an innkeeper specialist. These guys are found in the longleaf pine forests of southeastern United States, and they are huge burrowers. They will dig down to 40 feet underneath the sandy soil, and you can always tell when an, uh, a burrow that they have dug is active, because at this point, you will always see a huge apron of sand spread out across the uh, area in front of their burrow, that, and this, you know, is totally being inhabited right now by this gopher tortoise. Now the gopher tortoise eats lush green plants and so they're able to, in this way, come up above the surface when it's uh, the good temperature and feed themselves and then when it uh, gets a little bit too hot or uh, rainy or when the fires sometimes will come through their area, they go underground into their tunnel system and they're safe and protected in every way. Now this is for themselves again, but without a doubt these guys are the ultimate innkeeper because their burrow systems have been found to contain 250 species of other animals living inside their burrows. Birds, amphibians, reptiles, mammals, insects, spiders, other invertebrates all live inside these tunnel systems of the gopher tortoise. And they all get along peacefully and they're all happy tenants inside these uh, burrow systems. And these gopher tortoises are the peaceful landlords of these particular things. A very interesting case of God providing for all through the actions of one. Now tube homes. Now we've been looking at underground burrows and undersea burrows, but now we're gonna look at those structures built by animals for their own bodies. Now this is a caddis fly. Caddis flies are found throughout the world in uh, freshwater areas, and this is the adult form, but the larvae are the ones doing the building. They are found underwater, and they actually make themselves a construction around their bodies that they are putting together using whatever material is available. So in this case, it's made out of bits of uh, pebbles and rocks, and when you look down into the water and you see some long, weird tubes floating around underneath the surface, at that point, take a closer look because they might not just be flotsam, but in fact are these tubes of the caddis flies. And when you take them out of the water, sometimes you can see their little heads poking out because these guys are these larval form moving around inside the underwater with their 
home on their back, just like a snail that they have constructed themselves, and they come out of those homes to feed themselves on the various algae that they feed on. When they transform into the adult at that point, then they will fly off and lay their eggs, just like the ant lions we looked at earlier. This one right here is found in sea coastal areas. This is a sandy area, and it is called a plume worm. And it lives inside this tube that they have built, and they will be able to slide up and down that tube, and they'll be well protected from any predators that are coming by. And a lot of them will actually add seashells at the top to give themselves just a little bit of extra armor coating at the entrance to their burrow. This one right here is found here in your backyard. This is found along the coast of California, right near LA. These are called sandcastle worms. And they form large mounds along the coastal areas where all these little scallop openings lead into long tubes. And if you actually peel away, or one has damaged the side of one of these uh, things, you can see the long tubes, each one an individual home, all smashed together where the opening at the top. And so each one of these uh, tubes is the home of an individual worm. And the only time they ever emerge to the surface is out of these openings of the tubes where they feed and get uh, fresh oxygen through the water. And so these guys are found in these uh, castles of sand. Garden eels live a backwards life in their burrow that they are able to come and go out underneath these uh, uh, tubes that they have dug in the sand. And a whole forest of these guys can be found in sandy areas of the seafloor where all these guys are able to slide in and out of the tubes that they have dug. And so then we have yeah, this one more of the uh, garden eels right there. And then there are the jawfish. Now jawfish are active builders. These guys are very diligent in creating their burrow homes underneath the sea. They will actually go down dig out their own burrow with their own mouths and make themselves a nice little place to live. And so these guys are super busy. They're constantly going up and down, in and out of their hole. They're constantly jockeying for position with the next guy over because everybody's got to be a certain amount of space from each other. And if you get too close, it causes a lot of problems. So, you know, good, good fences make good neighbors. And uh, these guys will live inside their tube and come up to the surface with a shell that he goes, it dis disappears down in, comes up to the surface with a shell in his mouth and drops it in the neighboring area to get it as far away from possible from his hole so it doesn't just slip right back in. And then he goes back down in, gets another one in and out, in and out. And this way he's able to completely uh, get himself a nice little home dug into the coral rubble of which he lives. These guys are constantly active, constantly busy. They never let up. It is a, a nonstop uh, job to keep these burrows in the best condition possible because with the swirling water currents and animals coming by, a lot of times they'll get knocked down. And so this becomes a very, very uh, busy life for these jawfish. Now we're going to look at a very complicated form of architecture. Like I said, we're getting more complicated as we go. And this one right here is a one that probably you thought of when I said we're going to be talking about animal architecture, plant nests. Because what is the purpose of a bird nest? The only purpose of a bird nest is to provide a temporary shelter to lay your eggs inside it as a parent bird and have those eggs protected and safe from whatever uh, danger might come along, whatever elements are there until the time comes when those eggs hatch. And at that point then the little baby chicks are all ready to be fed by the parent and they still are in the nest at this point and they are fed by the parent until they're old enough to be able to get their adult plumage and leave the nest for their own uh, in independent adult life. So this is a very focused form of architecture that protects them temporarily until the time comes when they are ready to go on their own. Now each one of the nests created by birds is different. Every species does something a little bit different. Now no bird comes along if it's a robin decides I'm going to build a nest like a cuckoo today or I'm going to build a nest like a cormorant today. They never change their nests. They never decide that we're going to become something totally different than we were before. So how do these birds have this knowledge inherited from before. What started this chain of development a long time ago? This is a perfect example of how architecture and instinct has to be something given to animals by God. It cannot come about by blind instinct somehow just magically appearing in these individual species and from that point forward that species forever knows how to build its nest. Because remember a lot of these birds never teach their young anything and the chicks grow up in that nest without ever seeing their parent uh, build a nest and they will go off on their own and by next year they're building their own nest without any help at all. So it is totally hardwired instinct that has been given to these animals. So we're going to look at a few nests to see the huge variety just in the bird nest world and how God has made each one special. 
So some of the nests are bulky, large platforms like the one we just looked at, but some of them, like the Phoebe, build a very delicate little nest and then cover it up with green moss to help camouflage it. This will often be in a cave or sheltered area. And then when those chicks are ready to go, you can see this one right here, they're bursting at the seams. It is time for them to move out of the nest because there's just no room left for them. But uh, some of the birds, like the verdant, this is a desert living bird, they will build a large ball nest with a single opening at the top with which they can enter into this uh, enclosed space that gives them a little bit extra protection all around. The very familiar house sparrows that we see everywhere will build a large, bulky, messy nest in whatever nook they can out of whatever plant material or debris that they can find. And this is again a very uh, un uh, common nest we see all the time. Kiskadees are a loud, colorful, tropical bird that builds a huge nest with an opening at the top which it arches over. So it actually has a tube running into it over the top and down inside to the nest chamber to give them an extra bit of protection inside that spot. Cactus wrens are the largest form of wren in North America. They are always found in places where there are cactus or yucca because they will build their nest amongst the prickly spiny stems that give them a special protection from any predator that comes along. And these birds are hopping all over these cactus, sitting on it without any injury to themselves, but any predator coming along is going to be speared and in a lot of trouble if they try and fight their way through these cactus to get to these nests. So whether it is a prickly pear or a yucca, these nests are very well protected from any danger that might come and threaten the eggs. Now if you are a bird living on the ground and you're building a nest completely exposed, you're going to need to be one of two things. If you're a Canada goose or something large, you can defend your nest from any predators that come along because these guys are very aggressive. But if you are a small bird like a mallard, you're not going to be able to defend your nest very well. And so you're going to need to put it, hide it away in a nook or cranny and sit on it very quietly and very, very uh, camouflaged to be able to avoid any predators noticing where your nest happens to be. But if you are a big enough bird, you can ignore all those types of rules. You can be noisy, you can be messy, and you can be very obvious, and it's not going to be a problem because your parent is huge. The white storks, these are the famous white storks found in Europe. They build a huge nest on the ground, six feet across, and they will then lay their eggs and raise their young, and these young are noisy, very, very um, noticeable birds that will draw predatory attention from all directions because they're just such an obvious uh, tasty morsel. But the parents are always there. There's always a parent standing by them, protecting them from whatever danger might come along. And so this is one of those cases where a face only a mother could love he is very well protected by his parents, keeping them safe from damage. There are other birds that are like water areas, and this is an example of one, the white ibis. And these birds build large, kind of uh, bulky twig nests over the water surface in swamplands and marshes. And then they will have a nice uh, protected place up in the tree. And these guys are very uh, um, uh, noticeable because they will often nest in large colonies all gathered together to help them be a little bit extra protected because there's just so many of them, it overwhelms any attempt to you know, get at them by predators. And another example of this are the wood storks. These are also found in the southeastern United States, and they are the only stork that we have in North America. And these guys build huge nests up in trees, usually over a swamp that is full of alligators. Now this is a very deliberate act on their part because this gives them an extra bit of protection from any raccoon or bobcat or mammalian predator who does not want to swim by a whole bunch of alligators to get to a food source because then they will become the food source of the alligators. And so these are very noisy, very loud, very raucous uh, breeding colonies because they fear no danger because they are protected by the very uh, well-tuned uh, uh, sentries at the gate of the alligators protecting them from below. This right here is a red-shouldered hawk and is a representation of the many types of raptors, the birds of prey, which build a large bulky nest in a tree and add to it constantly. They're always adding every year, making it bigger, making it larger, and so all these types of hawks, like the osprey, will be making a bigger nest every single year, and it just gets bigger and bigger until finally the tree falls down. I mean, it's just, you know, becomes enormous nests found in these places. There are other birds that do the same thing. This is a great blue heron, and the nest looks almost exactly the same. If you didn't see who made it, you might have a hard time knowing which was which, but these guys also make very noticeable colonies in various places near wetlands. But maybe the weirdest of all these plant nest builders is the African hammercop.
This is a bird found in the jungles of Africa, and these guys build a huge nest six feet across, six feet deep, and it's all made up of twigs and mud and debris, and it's got several internal nest chambers with tunnels leading to each one, and they will then build several of these nests throughout their range, their habitat in this jungle in which they live, and then they will pick one of those nests, and then they will pick one of the chambers in the nest to lay their eggs each year. And so no predator knows which part of it is being used. They have to search each one, and so it gives them a very well-protected place to raise their young in this way. These guys are never stopped building. They're always adding to new nests, always working on the ones they have. American ravens are an example of the birds that build their nest on cliff faces, and they will build a nest totally uh, protected from any kind of predator coming by on land because it's got an overhang and, and it's protected on a cliff face. No predator can get up there. Cormorants are ones that do the same sort of thing on the cliff faces of the seacoasts. And these guys will build nests made of seaweed and various debris. And this is a very tough, very sturdy nest that protects these birds from anything that, uh, any storm that's going to buffet their coast, these guys are going to be able to ride it out sitting on their nests, and their nests are not going to dissolve and wash away anytime soon. There's a number of different birds that make use of plant stems. All the little grass stems and various plants, these guys are make use of those, the orioles. And they build these very elaborate hanging nests from trees. And the nests then will have their entrance in the center that goes down into their chamber down here. There are others like the metallic starlings, which are very colonial, and they will build a nest next to their neighbor, and the next to the neighbor, and next to the neighbor. So there's hundreds of birds working on these nests side by side out of the grass stems in which they build them. The one danger of this is you have to watch out for your neighbor that he doesn't steal from your nest to make his own, because this is a very aggressive little group of birds, so you're always watching the next guy very suspiciously. But the most incredible plant nest weaver of all are these little birds found throughout the old world of Asia and Africa. These are the weavers. And when I say weaver, it is not just a name that is kind of cutesy. They are actually weavers just like a human being weaving. And so what a male will do is he will get himself a nice perch out on the end of a twig, safe from any kind of predator, and then he will make himself a circular rim around the outside. And then he will start to weave grass blades into that system and he will add another green grass blade and another green grass blade. A single nest is made up of about 300 grass stems woven together into their nest. Now this has to be right and it has to be well done because this is gonna protect your eggs and your chicks and the entire opportunity to mate and breed for that entire year is based on the quality of your nest. So a male has to have the best nest possible to be chosen by a female. And so a male is putting together this by himself with no help whatsoever from the female. And he is putting together this nest constantly while the green grass is available because only the green grass will be chosen by the female. If it turns dry and yellow, it's not going to be chosen. So he's weaving grass stems in and out amongst the, uh, what he's already established, working on it constantly, except when a female comes by. And then when that happens, he immediately pokes his head out, and he goes and sits on a branch next to it, and he flutters, and he sings, and he praises himself and his nest that he has made. And the female comes up to the nest, and she looks inside of it, and she looks at it, and she sees if it's good enough. And then she goes to the next guy's nest and checks out his nest to see if it's good enough. And he, she does this all the time until she has figured out which nest is the right nest for her. Now... This becomes extremely important because if your green nest turns yellow and you have not been chosen, you are not going to be chosen. No yellow nests are ever chosen, only green nests. So if it is a really well-built nest like this, then you have a really good shot of getting a female impressed and she's gonna live in there and lay her eggs and everything will be fine. If you are a young male and you don't know what you're doing, or if you never paid attention in class, this is what your nest is going to look like. No female is going to choose a nest that looks like this. Now, at this point, this male who has made this nest is out of luck. He has failed. He is a loser. He is not going to get a female. And he has to actually, if there's time, start from scratch. Tear down this entire nest and start over with green grass and start over with a new nest and see if he can get it right. Think of all the dedication and perseverance and skill that goes into the perfect nest. This is truly an extraordinary gift that has been given to these birds. 
Now, they don't all come in yellow. There's a variety of different species of weavers. Some of them are bright red. Some of them, like this buffalo weaver, are white, and they come in various sizes. But they're all building nests and weaving in one form or another. And some of them build in the most elaborate, enormous, strange nests you've ever imagined, where the entrance here and this one is down here, and it goes all the way through this tube to the nest chamber up here. Each nest is different, and you can actually identify what species of bird you're looking at without ever seeing the bird. You just look at their nest, and you know which is which. So these guys are incredible, credible weavers. There are others called the sociable weavers, which build huge hanging nests made up of hundreds of individual parts. And it's like an apartment complex where each bird goes into their own opening, but it's all a very social group effort that puts these large structures together. So all of these bird nests all serve one function, protect the eggs, have them raise their chicks, and allow them to grow up into the adult that, allow, that will be independent. But each nest is different. Each nest is doing something special and unique that is for that particular species' needs. And no bird is changing nest, and no bird knows what they're doing except what God has given them in their instinct that only creation can explain. Now, we've been looking at birds that put together nests in, the, in plant nests. We're going to look at one more group before we quit here, and that are the young that are in wood. Now, some animals find a hole in a tree trunk and find themselves a nice place, and that's awesome, but a lot of animals build their own nest inside woods. Carpenter bees do this where they actually are digging into wood and creating a hole that they will then line with food, lay their eggs, and guard their young and protect them until they're able to hatch out on their own. There's a number of different tiny species of wasps which make tiny little openings in a hole that you, if you're not paying attention, you won't even notice it, but you see a little wasp crawling out of it, and this is a home that has been built by them for their young. But the more famous ones are like the woodpeckers. These birds are all across North America. They dig themselves a hole in a tree with their chisel beak to look for food, but then they dig it a little bit deeper, and then they have a home for their eggs. And so a number of different species of woodpeckers do this and uh, provides them a very secure, safe place for them to be able to raise their young and bring them their food and have them safe from predators. These can be quite noisy places because the chicks, as soon as they hatch, are yammering very loudly and it draws attention from all over the place. You immediately can find a nest of woodpecker chicks doing their thing in a particular tree. After the woodpeckers have finished with these particular nest holes, they go on, build a new one. At that point, many other birds come along and live in them, like these pygmy nuthatches. They will not build their own home, but they will be very happy to inhabit a home that has been built by someone else. And in fact, some of the most beautiful species of ducks in the world are dependent upon woodpecker homes for their existence as well, because they will not build their own home, but they will actually find a hole that has been dug by a woodpecker and been abandoned, and then they will lay their eggs in those holes for their young. So they're very uh, useful to many other animals besides themselves. Now, what if you are a woodpecker that is not living in a forest, but is living in the desert where there are no trees around for you to dig your hole in? The Gila woodpecker has to be able to solve that particular problem, and so they find a saguaro, and they start pecking at that, and they dig themselves a hole in that, and it's very soft and gushy inside there, but as soon as they've scoured out the hole, it actually makes a hard shell inside there, coating the, what, the damage that has been done, and that forms a perfect nest hole for them to be able to raise their young. Many other animals in the desert use these nest holes again after the woodpeckers have moved on to new things. The most amazing of all the woodpeckers, though, are the red cockaded woodpeckers of southeastern United States. They live in trees that are a very specific type of tree. It has to be a living tree, and it has to be a tree over 80 to 100 years old. And that is a very unusual habitat, and it has become rarer and rarer because of the uh, over-harvesting of that particular type of tree. And so this is a very rare bird now. You can see a hole up here and a hole down here is a double-decker one. And inside those holes, you can see the chamber that comes in where they will lay their eggs. And so this gives them a nice particular place to raise their young again. It has to be an old tree because only the old trees have enough rot inside the tree trunks to allow them to be able to dig inside there. But why does it have to be a living tree? Well, when they are digging out the hole and they've finished with that, they start on something else. And that becomes quite extraordinary. This is what happens if you are a woodpecker and you are pecking away at the living bark of a pine tree. It oozes sap and becomes very wet and sticky and dries up with this very hard sap layer all the way across the front of the tree, wherever you've damaged it. And they are specifically damaging the wood in this way to create this sap layer underneath their entrance to their home. Why are they doing that? That just makes their home look messy. 
It is a very specific protection against a very specific predator. In the places where these birds nest and live, there are rat snakes that can climb trees. Now rat snakes come out in the spring and they look for tree nests that they can climb up into and raid the birds, chicks, or their eggs. And so to protect themselves, these woodpeckers have learned to put this together with this sap protection. Now, of course, they didn't learn it. It was given to them by God to protect themselves. But uh, this is how they protect themselves. The contact of this sap with the snake of a belly is something that the snake wants no part of whatsoever because it burns them. It causes a chemical reaction on their skin that makes them just completely creep out. And so they can't get past the barrier. And if the barrier is large enough, there's no way for them to arch over it or climb past it or get anywhere near it because it is just a absolutely impenetrable wall that they cannot go by. They have to arch their body and eventually they just give up or fall off. So this is a very advanced form of architecture where they are using something unique in the structure of the home to give themselves an extra layer of protection. There are other insects like the jewel beetles which actually will uh, live inside tree trunks. They lay their eggs and then the larvae are the ones doing the digging. They burrow through these tunnel systems with the, their enormously large jaws eating their way through the wood and then eventually after they've come up to the surface they pupate into the adult of their species and then become these very elegant beetles. And you would only normally see that after you've removed the bark off these dead trees and you can see all these tunnel systems that have been put there by the larvae before they've ever pupated and come out to the surface. And they can be quite colorful and beautiful, the adults of these various species. But the most impressive of these beetles that are doing this sort of thing are called the engraver beetles. And they make these intricate chambers through there where their eggs are laid in a row. And then each little animal starts out from that spot and starts working his way through the wood. And you notice they get larger as they go as the uh, little larva gets bigger and bigger. These are used many times by human artists when they take these woods and turn them into some sort of artwork for our own use. It becomes quite elegant in the various structures they build. When the larvae transform, they, build, they turn themselves into these tiny little beetles that most of us will never even notice flying around lights in the summertime. And here's the last one, the hornbills. Hornbills are also tree dwellers, and these guys are extraordinary because they are found throughout all the tropical jungles of the world, and they have a huge variety of forms, but they all have something in common in the way that they raise their young. When a time comes for them to excavate or use a hole that they've already found, the female will go inside, she will lay her eggs, and then the male will plaster the hole shut with mud, leaving only a tiny little crack through the entrance that allows access in and out far too small for the female to ever escape again. And so she is inside that, trapped inside that hole, and the male is outside looking for food for himself and for his mate. He gets the food, he brings it to the hole, and he sticks it through the tiny crack, and the female inside is able to take the food from it and feed herself in this way. She will stay inside there, a prisoner inside her nest, until the time comes when the eggs hatch. At that point, then the male and female break down this barrier and allow her to escape, and then they repackage up the wall again, so that again there's only a tiny slit, and now both male and female are going to be looking around for food for their young, which are now inside, trapped inside that nest as well. So this provides them exceptional protection from any predator coming by because this is allowing them to have the best protection possible and at the same time be the most efficient in their raising of their young. Now that's where we're going to stop right now. This is the end of part one. Now you've noticed something as we've gone through these pictures. They've begun generally to get more and more complicated. This morning were the simplest of the forms of animal architecture, but they're only going to get more complicated and more extraordinary from here. As we go through part two at 5.30 today, we're going to be looking at even the most incredible forms of architecture in nature. And this is you know, just going to blow you away with some of the structures that animals make. I mean, it's one thing to dig a burrow or to use a hole inside a tree that you've hollowed out. But we're going to be looking at animals which are building structural buildings that are in, in many ways equal to or better than the own, st own structures that humans make. We're going to be looking at structures that are truly defy any kind of explanation that evolution can throw at it. So it's only going to get more, better from here. It's only going to get more astounding as we look at the animals that God has made and the ways that he has made them extraordinary. Now that's at 5.30. We're going to start promptly then because we want to make sure to have enough time to do that before we open it up for question and answer as soon as the meeting is done. With that, we will open it up to anything you want to ask about what I've been talking about here today. 
And then at 7 o'clock, after the, uh, the question and answer, we're going to be doing our final presentation of the day. And you do not want to miss this one. It is called, Without This Animal, You Will Die. Now, there are animals in nature that we cannot exist without. What are those animals? And how do the animals that God has made keep us surviving? Now, this is something that is a brand new presentation. I have never done it in the Loma Linda area before. You are the inaugural one for this area. I've only done it a couple times this year. It is a brand new presentation that is taking the latest findings in creation science and in the natural science of our world today that are just being discovered in the last few years. We're actually, this is cutting edge stuff we'll be looking at tonight. Stuff that nobody knew about until recently. We've been, uh, I've been incorporating into tonight's program because the structures of animals and the ways that they interact with us are far more complicated than we ever dreamed possible. And so you're gonna to wanna to know which animals are those that without them you will die. It's not hyperbole. This is real, this is practical. I've been talking about a lot of the creation science concepts in my programs that uh, I've done here over the years, and we're doing that again this morning and this afternoon, but tonight's program gets really practical. It deals with how we live our daily lives because without this understanding, we will make choices that will cost us and cost us badly. And so we'll be looking at the practical aspects of creation science to see how it affects us individually on a day-by-day -day basis as individuals and as Christians and as Adventists and as Americans, it doesn't matter. It all affects us, everything we do, because of what the structures that God has put into the natural world. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.